It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. It's Patch Tuesday. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about how Steve plans to stay safe with XP. He says you can too. And then we'll go through Apple's security white paper, the details about how iOS protects you and whether Steve agrees. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 446, recorded March 11th, 2014, iOS Security. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. And by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial today at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. Just use the offer code security now and you'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 50% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN50. It's time for Security Now with Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson, our explainer-in-chief. Steve is the... Uh, the guy who discovered the first spyware, coined the term spyware, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's written many a program to help you protect yourself online. They're all at grc.com along with Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. And each and every week he joins us to give us the latest security news, to answer your questions, and to explain how stuff works. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always, for our 446th episode Holy of this cow weekly security tracking um this week we have so much to talk about this may end up being a two-part episode i don't want to to shortchange the the later stuff especially very toward the end because um this is based on the the revision and update that apple made of their ios security document i found reference to one that was dated 2012 this one is February 14th, 2014. So this contains essentially a, a current snapshot of Apple's statement about what they've done for iOS security. And I mean, I, I couldn't decide whether just to title the podcast iOS security, which is the title that ultimately won, or crypto extravaganza or crypto <laughs> crypto heaven because I, I mean I, i'm just it, it, it's really interesting too because there were some areas where their new thinking exactly tracks the the thinking that has been developed for squirrel i mean the, oh, the same hmm. i mean it really was it was like it was like sort of freaky was i was reading through the ios dot dot document and they were explaining like 
how the fact that they use Touch ID, which allows you to bypass a password, allows you then to use a, a longer, more painful password, which you wouldn't otherwise use. Remember, I was just talking about that with the way Squirrel uses a hint where after you once enter your really long Squirrel password, you can then just sort of remind it that you're still you just by giving the first few characters of that password. And the the fact that you're able to back off from that requirement encourages people to use a you know a really good one that they only have to use very infrequently. Well, and this exactly the same trade-off and logic is like laid out in this document. So it's like, oh, okay, well, that sounds very familiar, Apple. And there's other places too. In fact, they've except for one place, they've they've chosen all the same crypto that I chose. The the same um, Dan Bernstein two five five nineteen elliptic curve and so forth. So that's not completely very, surprising because that's probably best in class and kind of what it is. Well, agreed to yes. Be. Yeah. Yes. Um, although, you know, an independent discovery we know happens all the time. If, you know, people sit down and try to find the best solution, given the same set of starting circumstances, they're apt to come to the same conclusion. And but that's what's ha- happened here. Speaking as an end user, it, make, it, it makes me feel better about it that they chose the same thing as, as my oh, security I was smi- guru. I was smiling as they, and they said, oh, we're using Curve 2519. It's like, that's oh, right. well, yes, yeah. Yeah. good. That's what you should be using. Except... One place. Uh oh. There is a bad NSA. Uh, oh no. Oddity. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it just stands out. It's like the one place they used the wrong elliptic curve, and it's an NSA compromised one, <sighs> and it couldn't be in a worse place. Yeah. What a surprise! It's in, it's in the iCloud keychain logic to protect everyone's iCloud backed up password libraries and so it's like oh and it just stands out there and they just kind of casually said yeah we use two p p256 and it's like what what you didn't use it anywhere else why are you using it here interesting isn't that interesting really freaky so yeah we have but Mm. there's just i have to say i mean my overall take with with that exception i mean that that does sort of spoil the whole apple uh, but um they did everything right. They, I mean, step by step through the design of this, it is fabulously structured. And at nowhere that I could find are they taking any advantage or are they, are they t- taking more than they need to. I mean, the, the architecture demonstrates a, a comprehensive respect for the user's privacy. I mean, it's just, it's immaculately designed. So, no, I'm, I I came away feeling, you know, really comfortable with it, with this one caveat, which uh, we'll talk about. But it's also the case that where they have made communication easy, such as with iMessage, the, you have, you have security but privacy is completely broken. Yeah. It's completely broken. So even though the security is good and, you know, we, we, all we got was murky information about iMessage before, now it's laid out. And it's, it is absolutely demonstrably, provably secure, except we have to trust Apple because they maintain the directory of public keys and it 
explicitly allows them to insert themselves in the middle, to be to perform a man in the middle attack if they wanted to. And which, you know, in, in, a, in a, an environment where they're also prioritizing ease of use. I mean, and that I have to give it, I have to tip my hat again. It's amazing how much security they have created and hidden the the inherent trade-off that you normally have with crypto. I mean, what we're holding in our hands, these little iPhones and iPads, they are little crypto bricks. They're amazing instances of applied cryptography. I mean, they, they really are tremendous given what we now know from this document. So anyway, I, we, as I said, we've got some news to talk about and we really don't want to hurry through that because we want to talk about uh, Edward Snowden's live appearance on South by Southwest. Oh, good. Um, we, of course, have the question of do we now know who Satoshi is? Oh, boy, that's a good one, too. Yeah. Uh, a, little, a little wacky one is Native Americans are jumping on virtual currencies and, you know, defying the U.S. Um, the first result of the TrueCrypt audit is out. Um the Squirrel Language Translation Project has just taken off like a like I couldn't even believe it. We've got thirty four translations and eighty people signed up to translate the user interface into thirty languages and dialects, um, and and more to talk about. So a great podcast. <laughs> We're gonna be busy, which may be part one of, of a great podcast. <laughs> Two great podcasts. Well, let's uh, let's briefly uh, mention our uh, sponsor, ProXPN, before we get into the meat of it. I know there's lots to talk about, but I do want to tell people how they can be safe when they're at an open Wi-Fi access spot or even at home if you're worried about your ISP snooping on you. And nowadays, I think that's a, a big cause for concern. People talk about what Google knows about you. Well, forget it. Your ISP knows everything about you. Uh, and if and if they're enforcing things like the that crazy uh, six strikes rule, you might you might want to hide your your activities online from them. That's where an open VPN is a great solution. Not easy to implement. If you're Steve Gibson, maybe you can do it. But uh, for a lot of us, the idea of a hosted open VPN uh, provider is uh, is a great convenience and a great solution. And that's where I go to ProXPN. And ProXPN does some things that you can't do yourself. For instance, ProXPN's servers are not only in the U.S., in Dallas, in London, uh, Los Angeles, and Seattle, and New York, but also overseas in London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. So that's an example of something that only they can do. They can put you in Singapore or London or Amsterdam, eliminating geographic restrictions. Complete online privacy, 512-bit encryption tunnel, Open VPN, or if your your device doesn't support it, you can also choose PPTP. Although, thank you, ProXPN.com, for providing Android and iOS apps that both implement Open VPN on your portable platform. That is fabulous. No more six strikes rules. No more ISP snooping. No more internet filtering or blocked websites. Bypass geographic restrictions. They've got software for Windows and Mac, too, that'll give you even more control. You can select ports, connect on startup, even select which program should be shut down if your anonymous connection is ever interrupted. There, this is the, And, of course, world-class customer support. This is a great service. I want you to visit proxbn.com slash twit to find out more. They do have free accounts. And, you know, I think most people are going to want the premium account. How many, how many uh, 
Proxies did Snowden use seven? <laughs> seven, <laughs> yes. Uh, you don't. You, you probably don't need seven. That can really slow you down. But if you use ProXPN, I think you're going to get quite a bit. Notice six dollars twenty-five cents a month when you are billed annually. Ten dollars a month when not. But I, we've got a special deal for you. If you use the offer code SN20, you're going to get twenty percent off. Less than five bucks a month on the yearly plan. That's a pretty big saving. And it's not just for the first month or first year. It's forever. If you're not satisfied, of course, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. So I think this is just as good as trying the free plan, except you're going to get the full premium service. Cancel any time in the first seven days and pay nothing. But gosh, what a great deal. What a great deal. 20% off for the life of your account. By the way, ProXPN accepts payment through Visa, PayPal, and Bitcoin. ProXPN.com slash twit. And if you use the offer code SN20, you're going to save 20% off forever. Don't be that guy. ProXPN.com slash twit. Protect yourself online with ProXPN. Yeah, well, seven seven proxies to protect his, I presume, his... Lo- well, is, I mean, we know his identity. It's not for anonymity, but to protect him for his location, right? Um, he mentioned Tor. We know that, that he is a, um, a believer in Tor. And I'm wondering if it might have been just the Tor network he was using. And he, bound, he had, he had set it up. deep Tor. I mean, usually you'd go more than seven. Oh, seven? You? Seven nodes Seven's jumping deep? all around? All right. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised right. we could even see him. Yeah, two frames a second about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, first of all, I just wanted to briefly follow up on something I mentioned last week. We talked about Foxit, unfortunately, um, and the fact that they had gone to the dark side, apparently. I received subsequently three tweets, one from Lobby Canada, that's at Lobby Canada, said SGGRC, it's true about Foxit. They've fallen in with the conduit.com scumbags. Uh-huh. Now I got to uninstall from everywhere. Um, someone GH underscore M3 tweeted, SGGRC, I've abandoned Foxit years ago. It's long annoyed me. Sumatra is a great super lightweight alternative. And so what's one of the reasons I wanted to bring these up is that that is the alternative plug-in for Firefox, which works very well. These are, we should mention know. PDF readers. I don't know if we've said yes. what these do. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I'm just assuming that everyone Everybody knows. In for, right, right, right. Um, and then uh, uh, really evil Rob with underscores between those words, he tweeted, upgraded Foxit, installer added a cloud component program without my knowledge, Ugh uninstalled and switched to Sumatra. So, uh, yep. Yep. So, beyond be, beware anyone who updates. Apparently, and I heard from other people that like a collection of stuff was installed in their machine. So, not just one thing. I mean, those guys basically just really decided to monetize and 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 upset their install base. Well, again, you know, it's their right to do so. It's our right to choose not to use them. So, I thought that Snowden's hour and the interview with the two guys from the ACLU held, um, what is it, was I think it was 11 a.m. here, 9 a.m. Central Time, was fabulous. Mm. And so I commend everyone who um, is interested 
to find this. The the ACLU posted a really bad uh, audio. I don't understand where it came from, but the echo on it is so bad it's unlistenable. That's Whereas silly. the live stream was really good. I mean, there was some, some muffliness, but you know, if you're going through seven proxies, you're going to have a little bit of that. But no echo, and the interviewers were super clear. Anyway, someone has captured the live stream, and I've seen a couple of them. The best one I've seen, I created a bit.ly shortcut for. It's bit.ly slash sn hyphen Snowden. Just the word, just Edward's last name by itself, that was already taken. So sn, as in security now, hyphen Snowden, all lowercase. That will bounce you to a very good one-hour YouTube capture of this of this one hour interview. Um, so it's from YouTube, uh, a YouTube account called LeakSource.info. Just for people's yes. uh, info. Yeah. Yes, that's the one, and it's completely listenable. It's virtually what we received. The the you know you're not going to see Edward's mouth moving in time to the audio. You know, you yeah. it's like a one frame per minute sort of thing. But the audio gets priority. It's funny, too, because they, they make a point at one point of saying it's the the irony is not lost on them that they're using Google Hangouts in order to to knit this thing together. Well, because- But let's not forget that uh, Julian Assange, uh, a day or two before that, used Skype and it died in the middle. So I think probably better to use uh, something and then yes. the proxies and all of that. Yeah. Yes, and in fact, they were they had a backup presentation in case some forces in the universe decided to yeah. to kill the interview. They had pre-recorded interviews, both 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 from Assange and from Snowden and one other person that they were, would be able to plug in if the worst happened. So you know, it didn't. It was an uninterrupted interview. What I liked about it was that it was so sane. It it was it seemed well. I mean, it was, it, it just came across. It, it wasn't rabid. Nobody was huffing and puffing. Um, it, it 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 just struck me as a a very mature sort of reasoned rehash of essentially what we've been talking about off and on through the last year. You know, the strongest points that Snowden made were he returned to the concept that crypto math works. That is that, the you know, the math we know and there is math that was, you know, has been who, whose provenance is uncertain, like the infamous now – elliptic curve deterministic random bit generator, the ECDRBG, uh, which was famously sort of snuck into RSA and then became the default, which everyone now believes was the result of NSA manipulation. And of course, we know, we know that for some reason, the RSA that year received $10 million. It was about a quarter of their annual uh, revenue, <laughs> air quotes, uh, apparently in some sort of deal with the NSA. So, um, but notwithstanding the things that are known or believed to have been influenced for the NSA's benefit, the fundamental math we really understand works and the academic community is continuing to develop it and, and, and vet it. 
And he also reiterated another common theme here of the podcast, which is only end-to-end encryption is TNO. Only when you are you have you arrange to share keys uh, or, or to generate a shared key in a way where you're also authenticating each end because that's the other key is without authentication that you don't you aren't protected from a man in the middle attack. So you have to have that. And of course, we know that there are tools like Threema and like Text Secure that have a that have a del- explicitly deliberately arranged to provide that to users of current mobile platforms and the unfortunately as i was me- as me- mentioning at the top of the show iMessage in making that trade off to just have it work sacrifices that guarantee um, and and therefore it isn't a system that we can absolutely know is not being eavesdropped on and the 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 thing that he said that i really didn't pick up in his initial presentations was that what he was honoring what he felt he was honoring was the 4th amendment which of course is our protection in the us against illegal search and and seizure which he said he swore to uphold and that's what he was continuing to uphold um and his point was that that the Fourth Amendment doesn't mean seize everything but don't search through it, um, which is, you know, arguably how this thing has been uh, interpreted and and the the regime we've been under now for some number of years. Uh, and I also wanted to make a point that the very first episode this season of The Good Wife uh, featured the NSA's involvement in some wiretapping and eavesdropping, and they were back in last Sunday's episode, and it was very humorous. I mean, they've, they've upped the stakes of the NSA listening on you know, on their phone conversation. So, uh, if anyone's curious, or if you if it's in some VCR or V you know DVR and you haven't caught it yet, uh, I, I can recommend it. It was it was pretty good. So, anyway, I. I, I it was a great hour, and uh, I really do recommend if if people haven't heard it yet, it, it's worth listening to. The interviewers know their stuff. They were really able to ask him the right questions. Uh, they were they also pulled from Twitter live, and uh, the the, t- the tweets coming in had also great questions. So it was all around very worthwhile hour. So I, I really recommend it. Again, bit.ly slash. SN hyphen Snowden will take you to the link. There's you can also, also um, the, the YouTube, you said that the, the ACLU audio was bad. Was well, that from the YouTube uh, posting? Because they say, uh, somebody's saying that the ACLU's official post is, uh, is better quality. Okay, good. Um, what I saw was something that they put up immediately, yeah. very shortly after the show. And it only showed uh, Ed talking. It didn't show the interviewers. And you're right. So this looks very good. Yeah. What, what, what this is showing the, right this now? This is the feed from the South by Direct. Okay, then that's absolutely the one people want. Yeah. It's probably a little more than an hour then. How long is that one? Uh, yeah, it's uh, an hour and one minute. <laughs> okay. It's from ACLU videos all or 
Yeah, ACLU videos uh, at YouTube. YouTube.com slash ACL videos, all one word. Good. And another note, by the way, of course, it's Ben Wisner, but it's also uh, Chris Segoyan. That's Sal Segoyan's brother. Who is the uh, security guy out of the uh, ACLU? I think. And oh, and and again, they were you know he was great about technology. Chris uh, he is answered, amazing. He, yes, he he field great. He field questions too. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a really fabulous hour. So I, again, any of our listeners who haven't just automatically decided that Edward should be shot, and I know there we do have a few some of them think that, that I, way. I think increasingly it's clear that's not the case. I, I have to say. Well, you know. I, I, I was thinking about it because as I was I, I was tweeting these links and getting some feedback from our listeners or at least from my followers, some of my followers who are just absolutely rabid about this. And and as I was thinking about it later, I thought, you know, if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't know what we know now. Right. I think it is vitally useful that we know what we know now. Imagine not knowing what any of this that we know. And I also saw that apparently only half of the document release campaign is is through. And there's still more coming, which is presumably, I mean, which is, we're told, even more significant. So, yeah, I mean, w- would anyone choose for this not to have happened? And, and you know, Edward said if he had to do it again, he would do it again without a, without a moment. I mean, I think this has worked out. Although he's, you know, banished from the U.S., I think it's that's the price he paid for doing what he felt was right. And again, I thank him because I can't imagine not knowing, then turning the clock back a year uh, with the blinders on the way we now know. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. And I, I I don't think you can make a case that there's any any harm done either. Uh, And maybe I don't know, but it doesn't seem as if much has. You know, unfortunately, we don't hear about any harm being done except from the people you absolutely know that's all they're going to say. Right. And so it's like, well, okay, fine. Of course, you're going to say that. I mean, you know, yes, all the generals and commanders in charge are, are, you know, furious and livid and talking about all the damage that's been done. Certainly. We know that's been done to our reputation, but, you know, GCHQ hasn't fared any better than we in this. And and anyway, so I, I just when I when I pose it as do we wish it never happened? I can't imagine going back to the way we were. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately it's now part of the terrain, but it's the truth right. of the terrain. Yep. So who is Satoshi? We <laughs> I'm dying to hear dying to hear what you think of this one. We arguably still don't know. Um, I think we do know. I mean, I, I I think what he first said when he was surprised by the reporter from Newsweek probably was the truth. He said, "I'm so not. Ha- I don't do that anymore." Right. Later, he recanted to the Associated Press saying, I meant I don't do engineering anymore, but it was pretty clear. Now, it, it does rely on the fact that Goodman, the, the Newsweek reporter, was accurately reporting this. And I wish we had a recording, frankly. Yes. And actually, what he sounded was, um, uh, uh, I had it here. Uh, Let me see if I can find the link. Yeah. Something like, I, I, oh, I don't. I don't do that. So, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't do that anymore. So yes, I I I I do have it here. 
I am no longer involved uh, in that, boy, that and right. cannot discuss it. Yeah. It's been turned over to other people. It's clearly now that's Bitcoin. damning. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know that's very hard to retract that. And so, so, so the story is he's a 64 year old physicist who is um, on the cover, essentially the story of Newsweek magazine. Um, he's he, he changed his name some years back. From Satoshi Nakamoto, you know, the name we, you know, the, the author of the published document, the paper where all of the Bitcoin architecture and crypto was laid out, he changed his first name from Satoshi to Dorian. So according to Newsweek reporter Leah McGrath Goodman, when Dorian Nakamoto was confronted at his home before publication... And asked about Bitcoin, he responded, quote, I am no longer involved in that and cannot discuss it. It's been turned over to other people. So subsequently, of course, when a news storm erupted uh, predictably around him, um, he chose one reporter from the crowd that was, you know, standing on his front lawn of his home in um, uh, Temple City, California, uh, and he, so he chose an AP reporter. They drove off to go get some sushi somewhere. And, of course, with this, you know, vapor trail of reporters following behind. So it was quickly clear to him, just looking in the rearview mirror or turning around, that, okay, this wasn't going to work. He wasn't going <laughs> to get away from have, these guys. Have any private yeah. sushi anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So instead they went to the AP, the AP press uh, headquarters where they, you know, had to, you know, I'm sure the AP guy had to swipe a badge. The gate went up and, you know, obviously it was private property. So other reporters were not welcome. And so there he says that he was misunderstood. And he said, it sounded like I was involved before with Bitcoin and looked like I am not involved now, said, quotes the AP. That's not what I meant. I want to clarify that. Mm. So, of course, Newsweek stands behind Goodman's reporting, saying that she did buy the book all of the, you know, lived up to all the standards of editorial, you know, reporting that that they would want. So this has caused, you know, his recanting and rewording and denial have, of course, caused some controversy. So, you know, we don't know. But let's remember that there is, you know, there's a, still a story here. I mean, there's a lot of stake because um, um, we we will know him by his digital signature, which he probably, if this is Satoshi, the Satoshi, still has. I hope and, so because uh, he's got four hundred million dollars in Bitcoin hanging out. In actually, six hundred. Six hundred now. Yes, analysts who've looked at the Bitcoin ledger have concluded that the creator of the system, which was presumably he owns about one million coins. Holy camoly. A million bitcoins. Shimony. So it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, wow. That's <laughs> all you story. can say. Wow. Yeah, great story. Mm. Meanwhile, the Lakota Native Indian, uh, the, the Native American Indian tribe, have decided they're going to adopt the Maza coin which is yet another 
Bitcoin clone. It's actually a true clone. Basically, an, another developer did his own version, or I hope he didn't stray too much from well-proven code, but he came up with another version of Bitcoin and dis- and was looking for some good place for it. He said, you know, it's like he wanted to do something good with it. So uh, federal laws granting Native American special legal status do provide an argument for a currency totally independent of the U.S. dollar. Um, and Native American sovereignty is legally defined over a patchwork of treaties, laws, and precedent. So, Isn't no, that this interesting? Tre- wow. Yeah, it's a little controversial, but a spokesman for the Lakota said, we're on sovereign soil, so we have the right to have Bitcoin, Litecoin, Mazacoin, whatever coin we want. Mm. And legal counsel, uh, South Dakota legal counsel for the Lakota, an individual named Chase Iron Eyes, believes the federal government will push back if Mazacoin succeeds. Yet he said, there hasn't been a tribal nation that has declared its own currency and has mandated that currency is used within its borders. But it's because of this pervasive ever-present asserted dominion of the United States. Hmm. They'll try to shut us down, try to cite us with law violations. So we'll see how this plays out. And my comment is a disruptive innovation indeed. Very interesting. Yeah. So you you believe that he he really is uh, Satoshi? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I do too. I, I I feel like, uh, of course, uh, uh, Goodman probably turned her notebooks over to uh, Newsweek, uh, and those would uh, indicate that. But I wish she'd recorded it. I know that's not well, actually traditional process in print journalism, but yeah. And I also feel like he, if he really wants to have his privacy, he he has a right to his privacy. Yeah. I mean, so maybe this will all die down. Maybe. Over time, it can kind of leak out, and so the pressure can all be released from this right. pent-up mystery of who he is. It, I mean, it sounds like she caught him by surprise. He spoke the truth. Right. Then he had a chance to, re, you know, rethink it and say, "Oh my goodness, what have I done?" I mean, well, you know, and understandably, not- he's been he's been anonymous all this time. I mean, yeah, and for good, you know, he clearly is a little nervous about. How people might react. I don't think he's at and, risk for his life, except that he's very wealthy. His name too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. To me, that's the weird thing, which is why did he use Satoshi Nakamoto? Right. That's his real name. Well, and again, rem- I, I, this is another place where the Wayback Machine comes in handy. He had no idea this was going to happen. Right. And so right. it's easy to look back and think, oh boy, don't I? I mean, clearly. He wishes, given his 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 news you know presentation to the Associated Press, clearly he wishes now that he had always been covering his tracks and deliberately right. being anonymous. But again, no one knew this right. was going to happen. This was just sort of a wacky internet you know concept. You know, a th- there was a prior coin that never really got off the ground, as I recall, and then you know this one made it and. You know, so it's like, well, so he, he, you know, he didn't know. Probably, yeah, exactly. He didn't know. No reason, no reason to take that precaution preemptively. Um, clearly, now uh, 
based on how he feels he wishes he had. Yeah. Wow. So we got a big update to uh, version 7 of iOS. Um, I, it touches on the podcast mostly, you know, not because of all the other tweaks, but because maybe Touch ID got fixed. Mm-hmm. I have had some very early feedback from other people saying that it really that their the touch ID seems to be doing a better job of recognizing and also seems to be faster. Um, so it seems to be there seems to be more resilience and more speed. So we don't know what that means. It'll take a, just as it did the first iteration. I think it'll take us a while to see if this fade, you know, is still a problem for people who aren't overtraining. I have I even had some reports from people saying that overtraining, uh, as we discussed on the podcast, seems to have a problem over a, over a period of time. But apparently, it takes a lot longer to die than it did before. So we'll see. Um, otherwise. From everything that Apple has said, it's just a whole bunch of UI tweaks. Um, I've noticed a bunch of changes. I mean, I'm a I use my iPad, fe- you know, constantly, and so I I have seen a lot of changes uh, in the UI. Just you know, nothing dramatic, but you know, things that really stand out. When you when you scrunch the app in order to go back to the home screen, it used to show you the home screen. Now it shows you your wallpaper, then the home screen fades in, probably because they had taken a snapshot of the home screen previously, and so technically it was old, and so it was then updating itself quickly, and that was they were wanting to remove that. So now they update off screen and then fade it in over your wallpaper. So, you know, you know sort of maturation sorts of things. Um but as far as we know, uh, no other big things. But of course, you know the new big um, what is it? Uh, Carjack, I think it's called. No, it's car. It's CarPlay. Uh, the uh, CarPlay, yeah, <laughs> not Carjack. I, I hope it's not Carjack. <laughs> the uh, the ability to uh, send your iOS experience to your dashboard. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, I noticed that fonts appeared stronger. The keyboard. The big on-screen keyboard fonts, they just look firmer, darker, stronger somehow, although it's not, that's not enumerated among the changes that are, are reported to have been made. So um, I don't know about that. Um, TrueCrypt uh, has had the first results of, his, of its audit sent to oh. the developers. Yay. Yes. Now, I saw that pass by. And noted it, but when I went to get more details for links and anything more, I, I couldn't find any reference to it. It's not nowhere is the on on the is truecrypt audited yet dot org site is there a mention of it? There, you know, they have everything um, calendared, but nothing in February of 2014. So I'm not even sure there's anything this year. That is posted, but no mention of that. But I'm absolutely sure because, uh, I mean, uh, this is something that would catch my eye and I would <laughs> I would lock on to that the first results of the audit have been given to the developers now. And it that's all it said. So we don't know anything about what that means. Um, and if there were some things that were found, it would be responsible to allow the developers a chance to respond. Maybe there'll be some interaction or to fix if 
the result of the audit requires some fixing. So, you know, I, I will certainly and I hope and I hope all of the people that I've got who who tweet me there, uh, the things they discover will let me know uh, if anything surfaces about TrueCrypt and the audit, because um, it's it's moving forward. And uh, it was interesting. I saw someone um, who just coincidentally tweeted this morning saying, hey, Steve, any word on TrueCrypt and, and where it is? Um, because nothing has happened for two years. And one of the places I went to look when I was looking for any update was the TrueCrypt site. And on news, you know, there's the latest version uh, dated something in, in uh, I think it was October, I don't remember, something in 2012. And my reaction was, well, yeah, you know, they got it right. It's done. So it's not something you need to be updating constantly. And uh, and cons- consequently, it's there. And for two years, it stood there doing a good job. Um, so anyway, as w- when we know more, we'll certainly let everyone know. Excellent. Uh, Team CYMRU is a nonprofit group that are dedicated to improving the security of the Internet. And they put out a a substantial white paper, um, which is titled Growing Exploitation of Small Office Routers Creating Serious Risks. And I just wanted to note that I've it's on my radar. It looks like it's, it may be a, 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 no, meaty enough to be a, a whole podcast. So um, I wanted to note that I've seen it and I'm going to plow into it um, as soon as I'm able to. Uh, so, you know, and we know we've been talking a lot about the problem with Soho routers and, you know, the, the firmware that's <laughs> becoming problematic. I mean, even to the point that worms are now beginning to grow out of these things. I wanted to mention that I have read Influx after Good. you talked yeah. to Daniel Suarez um, on your triangulation episode mm-hmm. and his his. Uh, audible book reader and then also it was paul's mention you know he well i think it was last week he said leo i mean he was actually asking you for permission even though audible wasn't a sponsor <laughs> it wasn't an ad <laughs> you know it's like i have to talk about this yeah. and and it was paul who just said boy you know he said it started off a little slow but then picked up i didn't think it was slow i just I, thought I it was liked it. i love the science fun. at the beginning you know i thought that was really, fun yeah yes really fun mm-hmm. so uh i have completely read it and i'm back now to honor harrington in you know sort of as my background reading when i can't do anything else when i can't work on squirrel um and speaking of squirrel um the ui design is finished uh i put it to bed on monday uh, posted all the final screens, so that is done. Um, at the same time, uh, when I talked about us using crowd, uh, God, I've forgotten the name. Crowd is a crowdfunding thing. No, crowd. There's two initials after it. Crowd, crowd in. Crowd in. C R O W D I N. Crowd in. The 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 crowd in guys. Um, who were kind enough to to make their facility available to the project, um, uh, uh, still hadn't really made it official. Now, Leo, if you go to crowdin is it dot net? Yeah, crowdin.net slash projects slash squirrel s q r l. That'll take you to uh, maybe it's project. Maybe, maybe it's single, not single project. Yes, project. Let's try that. SQRL. Yeah, there you go. 
Project yeah. Singular. Now, now up in the top wow, are the only la- so up in the top are the only languages we don't have translators for. Um, Holy so cow! Look, you need so Arabic, Korean, Tagalog, Thai, and Vietnamese. But look at all the languages you've got, including Chinese, Dutch, French, German, Greek, Hebrew. Holy! These are all Ukrainian. Wow! Yes, what, I, I put up one string. Welcome to the Squirrel Translation Project, and we now have that string. Oh, not okay. That it really does well, that was an easy good. one. So it's just one. That, okay. Well, if I needed somewhere for people to, you know, get right. gather around, and I really didn't expect that it was going to explode like this. But you can also see. I think it says eighty or however many over there on the right. How many people are a member? There, there's me, and then eighty-one users. So. If you speak English and a second language and you'd like to help out, this is a great place to go. Crowdin.net slash project slash squirrel, S-Q-R-L. Wow, that's great. Yes, and so I did want to definitely tell people that um, this exists. We'd like it'd be better to have, in some cases, there's only one person per language it's better to have a little bit of a team per language right, right. and 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 what this does is it gives you a complete forum to discuss competing translations so i mean so you know one person might put something up and someone says yeah you know that i mean i'm not even i since i only speak english i can't give any really good examples but i'm sure there are you know alternative ways of saying the same thing in a different language. And so this really creates a social environment for translators to work. So here's the deal. Um, the announcement of my finishing the user interface design coincides with my announcement that I am starting coding. So I am finally, at, like, like when this podcast is over, I literally set to work on writing the code. I'm not going to publish all of the user inter- interface strings because I am sure they are still subject to change. Working through the whole UI allowed me to essentially design the product. I mean, it is the, the, the detailed design of when you push this button, this happens, and, and how, it, how it flows and all of the user interaction. That's nailed down. That's what I did. And it took 10 weeks because, as I have said before, there were places where I realized you ease of use was in conflict with the technology. And so I went back and changed, made major changes in the way we manage keys and the way, like in, in some cases, keys were being independently arrived at. Now there's a parent-child relationship between them that that really helped the, the, the user flow and the user experience. So, so this took 10 weeks. I'm sure as I'm working through actually implementing this, there will still be things that come up. There will be, you know, something I want to break up into two pieces or I realize, hey, there's a simplification here or, you know, and, and that will have an impact on the language. So even though I believe, even though I have an initial set of what I would consider alpha user interface strings, I, I don't want to run people around in circles by like posting them all and, and having everyone work on translations because, I mean, there is a lot. There's a lot of user interface. And I think it makes much more sense for me to push this thing f- rapidly across the finish line, which is now my goal, 
and then we will have it running in English and final, you know, a known final implementation. And then I can immediately publish the UI strings for translation. And a very short time later, we'll have it in 34 different languages. So what I am doing is, I mean, the, the impact that my determination to make this internationalized, which is a, really a, enabled by everyone's willingness to help with the translations, is that I'm externalizing the strings explicitly into a set of files which are what will be translated. And of course, I also clicked a button when I was setting up the project to, to publish the result. So what the other cool thing is that the results of everyone's work is not just for me, but it is for all Squirrel clients. That is the entire the entire multilingual product of this effort will be public. And so to the degree that clients for iOS and and Mac and Android and, and other platforms reuse what I have done, they're also getting for free all the translations into, you know, all the languages of the world. So uh, it's it's an exciting moment here. And uh and I'm believe me, I'm really excited to get going on writing this thing because, of course, I want to see it happen, uh, and I want to get back to Spinrite. Uh, and speaking of which, I'll just share a tweet so we know it's short. Uh, Jeff, uh, it's, well, his, it's Jeff Harmon who tweeted from Harmon underscore Jeff at 10:41 p.m. on the 6th of March, so a few days ago, using his iPhone, he said, "Thank goodness for Spinrite." and SGGRC, repaired hard drive enough to pull off 350 gig of photo slash video to a new drive. So another uh, instance of Spinrite saving people's data. You know, it's, it's, it is the case that drives are cheap, but people often have huge investments in their, their photos and videos. There was another thing that came along relative to Bob Cringely, you know, the Bob Cringely, who uh, on his blog, I saw some people letting me know that 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 Robert uh, was now running all of his drives through Spinrite. Oh, as that's some good. Big process to like uh. keep them alive. And like before doing data transfer or data recovery, he was just, you know, doing a big housekeeping maintenance project okay. uh, using Spinrite. Very and he nice. mentioned there, he said, still the best hard drive uh, data recovery utility ever written. So thank you, Bob. That's awesome. Um, of course, and I almost I hesitate to mention this, there'd be a lot less use for a spin right if people would just back their crap up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that would solve one problem anyway. You wouldn't have to freak out. And that's yes, I'm not worried about that happening anytime soon, Leo, because <laughs> Spinrite's been on the market I know, for 25, I know. 25 years, and yeah, we're doing just fine. It's just it's all everyone the people wants, who, yeah, Everyone wants the next one, and I can't wait to give it to them. As soon, the, moment, the moment Squirrel is put to bed, I'm on to Spinrite 6, back to Spinrite 6.1. Good. Good. Meanwhile, if you would like to back up, you know, if you're in a business, to, to rely on the fact that you can maybe recover your data from your hard drive seems like a poor uh, backup strategy, and it doesn't accommodate disaster acts of god fire flood tornado hurricane it doesn't accommodate user error or somebody just stealing your stuff 
A good backup is the best way to keep your business in business. Carbonite Online Backup. It's automatic, so Joe in accounting doesn't have to remember to back up the server every Thursday. It's continuous, so every moment that you change a file, every every as long as you're online, it's backing it up. And yes, it's backing it up to the cloud, which means uh, it's safe from the worst acts of God. 300 billion with a B, files have been backed up, and of course, more all the time. 50,000 small businesses, 20 billion files restored. I mean, I'm telling you, Carbonite really is the monster of online backup, the best. And part of it is because it's, it's affordable. It, it's a flat rate, yearly fee. They don't count how much data. They uh, don't even throttle anymore. They as much data as you want. Uh, of course, uh, you want to try it first. Make sure your upstream bandwidth is sufficient. So go to Carbonite.com and uh, use uh, our offer code Security Now. You don't need a credit card to try it free for two weeks. And if you do use Security Now as your offer code, uh, you'll get two free bonus months when you buy. As little as $59.99 a year for everything on one Mac or PC. They have plans for workstations, databases, applications, servers. They have a lot of advanced plans. If You can even send them your hard drives and so forth. HIPAA compliant. That means data is secure. Carbonite is the cloud backup leader. Try them today. Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now for two months free. And for the rest of you, there's always SpinRight. And you know, Leo, we almost synchronized that nice uh, ad insert with the, 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 the weekly, garbage trucks. The weekly garbage. The NSA data <laughs> collection on Steve's uh, refuse. Yes. Warning that we're backing up. Uh, so, you know, I completely forgot uh, something else that is important. This being the second Tuesday of the month. Um, this is oh, Microsoft today. Patch Tuesday. Yeah. yeah the 11th. And uh, this is the second to the last one that there will ever be for XP. And, you know, we knew, I knew, and I know you knew, Leo, last week, that my, my suggesting that it was okay to run XP without a, a monthly infusion of emergency, you know, blood transfusions uh, was safe. And, you know, sure enough, I got flack through Twitter from people's, and I'm, I haven't even checked the mailbag, you know, people telling me I'm crazy and, and you know, and, uh, and I did make it very clear that this was for, you know, security now, listeners, security aware people that, you know, people's grandmothers probably shouldn't do this. But, you know, the cases that we read in last week's Q&A were people where, you know, they were being very careful. Their XP was, you know, in an internal network. They, were, they needed to use it, you know, in order to, to run a remote desktop application. So they were viewing, they were only viewing a different desktop, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, my argument being, it's not like the bits decay without their monthly life support of updates from Microsoft. And I got a kick out of um, an F-Secure uh, report, which which I just ran across this morning, when I was when I was tracking. Actually, it, it's relative to mal the relative amount of malware on on different mobile platforms, and that's what brought me to it. And it's a fabulous report. It's their they do a first half of the year they call H one, and a second half of the year H two. This is their H two report. So it just came out. 
about the second half of 2013. Uh, and one page caught my eye, and this is completely germane and relevant to us and this issue, so I wanted to share it. The, the title of the page was The End is Nigh? Question mark. And they said Microsoft's Windows X. Now, this is F-Secure, remember, the, the you know, serious guys with, you know, who are on top of what's happening with, with malware in the world. They said Microsoft's Windows XP operating system reaches its end of extended support period on April 8th of this year. And after that, no more public system updates. No more public security updates. Users will be on their own. But XP is still a very popular OS, or at least it is prevalent. See other sections of this report for details, they say. Then they said elsewhere in this report are detection statistics which highlight two very serious threats to Windows users, web-based attacks and Java-based attacks. And Windows XP is particularly an issue because once compromised, it is much more difficult to repair than its siblings. An ounce of prevention is really worth more than a cure in the case of XP. Prediction. The April 8th deadline, they have in quotes, will be picked up by the mainstream press as a type of Y2K apocalypse waiting to happen. And when nothing happens on April 9th, the press will again publicly question what all the fuss was about. Meanwhile, in the tech press, reporters will be patiently waiting for the first critical post-XP vulnerability. When, parens not if, a powerful zero-day exploit makes its way to market. That's when the real concerns begin and important questions will be asked. Can XP be trusted? But all is not lost. Patching XP is not the first line of defense, or it shouldn't be. And they're actually saying it better than I did. I mean, this is essentially what I was, was saying. They said some businesses will continue to use XP throughout 2014, either due to contractual obligation or because their customers do so, and they need XP to provide support. In those situations, IT managers have their work cut out for them. Air-gapping systems or isolation to separate networks from critical intellectual property is recommended. Businesses should already be making moves such as this bring your own device for users, XP is just another resource to manage, essentially. Folks that continue to use XP at home can do so with some reasonable amount of safety for a while still. But they absolutely need to review their internet, particularly web browsing and computing habits. And, you know, and that absolutely is the key. Um, which is essentially what we're talking about when we say, for example, you know, you don't want to go browsing around the net with IE. Um, so they have eight points. Install Windows XP's final update. Duh. Uh, install an alternative browser or browsers, and it says in parentheses, they're free. Don't solely rely on Internet Explorer and don't use Internet Explorer as the default meaning, you know, use Chrome or use Firefox. If installed, make sure Microsoft Office is fully patched. Note that older versions of Office will run 
run things such as Flash by default if embedded in documents. If using an older version of Office, tighten up the security options. Don't open documents from sources you don't trust. So in other words, you know, Office is another point of of entry of problems that, you know, we've certainly seen for years and they're not going to go away, especially post-zero-day exploit revelation. And, of course, the same is true of the browser. Review the third-party software you've installed and uninstall anything that isn't needed. That's always a good idea. We've talked about that before. Just essentially lowering your attack surface by, by having fewer things there. That actually is a, a point that Apple also made in their iOS security document that I didn't highlight and, and pull out for the podcast. But they make the point that because of their, their design-to-fit approach, they didn't take an existing operating system, you know, like a full-blown Unix, and just move it over into the iOS uh, mode and, and thus still have all kinds of things running where you arguably need a firewall in order to protect yourself from, from exploits that are unknown of those running services. Instead, you know, they have a, an extremely minimal footprint doing only what's necessary. Um, so, you know, they weren't in a position of having to block um, unknown threats. So anyway, this, this says for third-party software that you keep – Oh, so, so, so they say, if you're going to keep XP, do a spring cleaning and get rid of old software because old software very often equals vulnerable software. For the third-party software that you keep, consider disabling or uninstalling the browser plugins. Set the browser to always ask what to do about things such as PDF files. And again, I know I'm, I'm using Firefox as my go-to browser with no script. And in fact, in fact um, uh, Snowden uh, also referred to both no script uh, and ghostry as, uh, as, as an ad blocker for, for things to you know, um, uh, install on Firefox in order to, to make that browser more secure. Um, I said for the third-party software that you keep, consider disabling or uninstalling the browser plugins. Set the oh, I'm sorry, yeah, I already read that. The, brow- the browser to always ask what to do uh, for things such as PDF files. Then they ask, do you need Java installed on your home laptop? Probably not. Advanced browser features include click-to-play options. They're worth the extra effort. Number six of eight is have an up-to-date security product with antivirus and firewall installed. So the point is, you know, again, even though you're not going to be getting things from Microsoft, you can still get things from everybody else. So having something there that is continuing to watch you, and as we know, Microsoft Security Essentials will continue being supported after patches stop flowing from Microsoft for XP. Keep your XP computer connected to a NAT router at home which will act as a hardware firewall, standard advice, of course, uh, and, and great advice, <laughs> given that your, your router can be trusted. Um, uh, and finally, consider updating your OS. If you don't want Windows 8, there's always Windows 7. The OEM installation is still available for many fine online retailers. So I just, I know this is of interest to a huge body of our listeners who are, you know, Still using XP as I am and uh, and will be 
for some time. Okay. iOS. Um, as I said at the top of the show, I am overwhelmed by what Apple went ha, has gone through to create what is arguably a walled garden, as the term is. And we know that it is a, a carefully controlled and curated ecosystem. The, the result of that level of control is the reason, actually, that I went to that F-Secure report. Because one year ago, um, in, in February of 2013, McAfee, which, or, which is now, you know, the soon-to-be-renamed whatever it is, owned by Intel, they reported a year ago that the, mal- the mobile malware samples had jumped from 792 seen in 2011 to 36,699 seen in 2012. So a, a dramatic jump in, in observed malware. And 97% of those samples were designed to attack the Android platform. Come forward a year to this second half of 2013 report that F-Secure just released. And, and they say, quoting their report, 97% of the mobile threats in 2013 were directed at the Android platform, which racked up to, which racked up 804 new families and variants, um, said F-Secure. The other 3%, um, that's 23 things, were directed at Symbian. No other platforms had any threats. In contrast, 2012 saw, by F-Secure's count, 238 new Android threats. So 238 new Android threats in 2012, 804 new Android threats in 2013. And, and they explained, they said, for mobile platforms, the continued dominance of the Android operating system makes it almost the exclusive target for mobile threats we've seen this period. Though the relatively low number of vulnerabilities found in Android itself makes the operating system difficult to attack, this security is largely circumvented by the relative ease with which malware authors can provide their products, in quotes, and dupe users into installing it on their own devices, with the necessary permissions to straightforwardly use the device and the user's data for the attacker's own benefit. So, so this really is the difference between t- today, between the Android environment and the iOS environment. And that is solid and, and, and secure as the Android platform is, it literally takes everything that Apple has done to lock a platform down. In, I mean, given the, the truth about the amount of pressure there is for exploit of, of the mobile devices. And you have to know that 
were it not for Apple having developed a an a an incredible soup to nuts security ecosystem within their platform, which is really what they've done, which is what I learned about reading this 33-page paper and which I'm going to describe. Were it not for that, the iOS would be a catastrophe. I mean, it, it would be a disaster because you, you, you know bad guys would love to be, to be in there um, doing what they could. And essentially, the architecture that Apple has prevents it, with the exception of, of you know, the, the, the explicit jailbreaking that, that you can do if, you know, if you really want to break these protections. It's, it's still possible. But if you don't do that, the, the protections Apple provides are, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're just beautiful. So, um, so essentially to pull off this closed ecosystem, you know, to actually close the system and, and to ward off what I think is clear would otherwise be a massive assault on the platform, they have, they've, they've had to take security very seriously. Um, and what, what, what impressed me as I'm looking at this, as I as I see how much crypto, as I said at the top of the show, uh, I wasn't sure whether to call this iOS security or crypto heaven, because I mean there is j- the the crypto stuff. There are some descriptions I'm just going to read with, without even trying to decode them or figure them out. Not mostly, but but there are a couple because they, I mean they just make your eyes cross with. With how with what Apple has had to go through in order to achieve the level of security they have, and that's a lesson too, because I would contend that nothing short of this is enough. That is what we've seen time and time again is it just takes one weak link in an otherwise fabulous design to break the whole thing. I mean, you, it, 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 as we know, the, the nature of security, we've talked about this often from a philosophical standpoint, is a, is, a, is a chain of interconnecting links, of interdependence um, from, you know, of, of, from, from one end to the other, where you're depending upon the proper behavior at every step. And for example, at one point, you're, you're depending upon the, the processor itself to properly execute instructions. If it turned out that there was some subtle problem in the division, and we you know we've had those days, we all remember the early days of Intel processors where there were, you know, division problems were discovered when you got the wrong answer on on a on a I don't know if it was Excel or even before Excel, but a spreadsheet could produce the, the wrong answer because the divide instruction wasn't working. And, you know, even something like that could cause a break in the crypto system. There could be a way that could be leveraged by bad guys. The point is, you know, doing this, you have to be perfect. And perfect turns out to be really difficult because what we also want is a huge amount of flexibility. And arguably, whereas Apple gives us much less flexibility 
they still managed to deliver a lot. Um, and what impressed me was the user is impacted minimally by this. There, and all of us who have used iPads and iPhones have sort of felt like a little, there's sort of an oddness that you encounter, like the way you have to do something. It turns out that underneath that oddness is serious crypto, which Apple has hidden the best way they could. And it just so it only sort of pokes out a little bit in you having, you know, you kind of grumble about, you know, the way you have to do something. Well, it's only there because there was there was a serious security requirement for it being done that way. And more often than not, a magic is happening underneath. So um, what I found, and, and, and again, this, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to rave about the, the security structure of this foundation when I've already raised the question about the security of iCloud key storage. Um, but for, for this to be useful, I mean, the phone is still useful. The, the, the tablets are, are still useful. The security there is amazing. And, um, and we'll, we'll get to talking about the use of the P256 elliptic curve uh, toward the end of this. It has no bearing on what I see as Apple's, in, in the architecture, Apple's total respect for the user's security and privacy in the design that, that they document in, in this 33-page PDF. Um, at the time of manufacture, the chip fuses a unique ID into itself, which is part of the secure enclave crypto engine. The, 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 there, there is a, a unique ID and, and, and a separate secure enclave ID, neither of which expose themselves in any way to the outside. Apple has no idea what it is. There is there's no idea. There, there, there's no way to determine what it is. All that you, the only interaction with it is that things get encrypted by these keys. And these are AES 256-bit keys fused into the application processor during manufacture. And it's impossible. No software or firmware is able to read them directly. You can only see the results of their use by the encryption and decryption operations that are performed using them. So, so this is a sort of a, a key piece of the structure that Apple then leverages throughout the rest of the architecture. That is, they are, they are often encrypting stuff which needs to get stored or needs to get sent somewhere under the, the device's unique ID. And, and no one knows what it is. The device knows, but there is, there is no way I mean, Microsoft doesn't know what this is. They're, they are oftentimes 
seeing unique blobs or just pseudo random blobs of data. So there is, you know, there is a huge amount of this that is really faithful to the TNO paradigm of of trusting no one. Now, as I mentioned, there are some communication services that they offer that again, for the sake of offering the service, they are not TNO. They are they are unfortunately this is a trade-off that they had to make. And there's a little bit of misdirection, I have to say, in this document where they're, you know, bragging about how they're unable to encrypt the data that's, you know, being that's moving through iMessage. Well, that's really not true. And but we'll talk about those details here toward the end. Um, so the first thing that they've done is they have a they have a hardware AES 256 bit so at a, a 256 bit keyed AES crypto engine in hardware built into the DMA DMA is common acronym direct memory access the DMA path between the flash storage and the main system memory which is to say that that sitting there as a gatekeeper to a flash to the non-volatile memory is a crypto engine so that in absolute best practice in in the way that you know we've talked about from the beginning never is non-encrypted data written to flash it is always encrypted even when you when you don't initially have a a lock screen or a password or a key set um, there is a there's a random number chosen at, at at during the first time you turn this the system on that random number's chosen it's then used as the as the key for this DMA um, uh, DMA encryption so that and they make it clear that if you know if you have absolutely no password of any kind on your device, then then you don't have the protection that you can get. But what this does give you is instantaneous wiping, because all they all Apple has to do is to wipe that key either either through some action on the device or any of the 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 uh, mobile device management connectivity or you know the 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 systems and solutions they offer for reaching out and you know wiping your device remotely so so this 256 bit random number is is available for erasure and the other thing that they've done again demonstrating you know the kind of attention to true security that we want is they store many very sensitive keys in flash memory. And then the question, of course, is, okay, how do you erase that securely in the face of wear leveling? And they they have an explicit memory system that they call effaceable. Effaceable flash allows them to bypass the, the NAND-style wear leveling and never have that data relocated somewhere else. 
So they're able to they're able to lock it in place and and know that they are w- securely wiping a key when they want it to no longer be valid and never have to worry that that the the NAND flash memory manager has swapped that key off in order to to balance the writes across the space of of the NAND flash. So again, they did that right. In the boot ROM is Apple's root CA public key. So that sits in the boot ROM and allows throughout the system, allows every stage of iOS coming up to have its integrity checked. So the the boot ROM loads from Flash into RAM the working kernel image and and verifies its signature. So so Apple knows that that what you're loading is this kernel image that that they have that, that they originally signed. One of the cool things about again the way Apple has thought this through is is the way they handle updates. Um, imagine the problem of this whole ecosystem moving forward, fixing over time security problems. You know, we started with what we had version five a while ago, version four, then five, then six, and now we're at seven. <coughs> and many of those earlier versions will still run on the hardware platform, but they but they have at this point many known security weaknesses, which have since been fixed. Well, and famously the 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 SSL certificate verification problem that didn't you know the the double go to fail problem. So imagine the problem if it were possible to take an image of a prior build, like if you could take. 7.0.6, which everybody in the world had loaded on their devices two weeks ago. And you just simply reload that, you know, grab that from somewhere and stick that on someone's phone. Make them, you know, deliberately downgrade their version of iOS. It's, you know, it, it, it would be signed cryptographically from Apple. So it's a valid image. It's a valid um piece of code for this model and and version of hardware. Um, But we now know that there's a problem and you wouldn't want to be running it. The way they solve this is that every iOS device, when it wants to upgrade, is it generates an inventory of all the different packages, the, the, the pieces that it has, it generates a pseudo-random nonce, which will only be used once, and it's you and a version of its unique ID. This is not the UID, which is the the device unique ID, which nobody knows. This is called the ECID, um, and but it it is also unique to the device. So the the device takes its inventory, the nonce. And the unique ID that the nonce is there so that 
to to make all of these requests unique so that another one would always be different so that there would never be a repetition. This goes off to Apple. Basically, it's our device making a claim for updates from Apple saying, these are all the things I've got. Does anything need to be fixed? If so, Apple builds for this device, per device, a custom update package, including the ECID, in this bundle and signs the result. So what comes back is a bundle that is signed by Apple that contains a, a, this ECID not shared by any other device, unique to this one device, and this device will only run this bundle and accept it if it's both signed by Apple and contains its ECID. So that very handily prevents downgrade attacks. That is, that you cannot take any of the update software from any other device and get a different device to accept it because the essentially the device requests it and Apple generates a custom package for that specific instance of a device. Apple does know the ECID, but not the unique ID from which the ECID was derived. So, so you know, they've got that part nailed. Do you want to take a little break here? And, uh, Perfect. Breathe. <laughs> and uh, those of you who wish to uh, take a bathroom break can, because it's time to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors. Then we'll continue on. And I know you want to talk about iMessage. Uh, that's a big topic uh, of uh, interest. And yes. then this oh, yeah, we've got a, thing. We, we have a lot to, to talk go. about. Yeah, yeah um, I would say here we are, you know, we're at an hour and 13 minutes. We'll go another 15 minutes and then we'll do part two next week because we're not going to get all this into one podcast. And there, there's just there's so much good stuff here I want to talk about. Yeah, it encourages me that Apple's thinking about this stuff, you know. Oh, Leo, this is more than thinking. This is, well, wait till you get to some of the good stuff. The way they handle file keys and file mm-hmm. permissions. It's just, I mean, it's, it's intoxicatingly beautiful crypto. So I'm really impressed. You think better than BlackBerry? I just don't have anything to compare. We never got this kind of of comparison. Yeah. Uh, Our show today brought to you by uh, IT Pro TV. These are uh, great guys who have for years taught people uh, to prep for the CERT classes, you know, the CompTIA and the uh, MCSA and all of those. For a long time they've been doing that. But at at some point they thought there's got to be a better way. Uh, to do this than, you know, drumming, you know, drill and kill and drumming into people's brains. So Don and Tim looked around. They actually came to uh, our studios. They were already Screensavers fans. They went to a talk that I gave at uh, NAB Broadcast Minds, and they got kind of inspired. They said, wait a minute. What what if we did kind of what uh, Twit and Tech TV did, but for, for uh, studying for these certs? And IT Pro TV was born. Hundreds of hours of content, 20 hours every week. Yes, they do live streaming just like we do. And then, of course, you can watch it after the fact. One of the nice things about live streaming is you can watch live, but you can also interact with the uh, chat room in there. 
which is fabulous. Let me make this, uh, pump this into the uh, audio here so you can hear it. Um, that's Don talking about, I don't know what. If I went back here, I could say that. And then the people in the chat room chatting along with him. These are both real, now, what happens, right? of course, is they and become part of a longer-term episode library. So you've got your A+, Net+, Security+, soon-to-come CASP certs. You've got your MCSA certs, soon-to-come MTA, Cisco certs. And they're going to start doing these ISC2 certs as well. So if you're, you know, and this is for a fraction of what you'd pay to go to a technical school to learn this stuff. Or even to buy the books What's nice, though, is you could put it up on your Roku. Yeah, they have a Roku app. You can watch it on your laptop or your tablet. So you always, you know, it's it's kind of going on in the background. So you absorb this stuff as you go. You pay all access. Subscriptions, $57 a month, or you can get 12 months a whole year for 570 bucks, And you've got access to everything. But we've got a special, of course we've got a special deal. SN50 takes 50% off your subscription forever. Twenty-eight fifty a month, $285 a year. That is a fraction of what it would cost just to buy the books for this stuff. You will learn everything you need to know to get your cert, to get a better job in IT, to study, to learn. Great stuff. There's Q&A in here, like forums, so you can... You can even uh, go to the part of the episode and the, and the part of the library that's specific to the exam questions you need to study for. You don't even waste any time. It's all divided up by exam objectives. I just love this. They do it all. Same camera, same microphone, same lighting, same TriCaster switcher. But it's but it's for IT professionals and people who want to become IT professionals. It's IT Pro. Go to itpro.tv slash security now. Use the offer code SN50 and you'll get 50% off. Thanks to Don and Tim. And they say they want to thank the Twit Army. <laughs> for their support, yeah. They just broke 1,000 subscribers the other day. That's awesome. And we thank them for their support of Security Now. ITPro.tv slash Security Now. On we go. Steve Gibson, Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Hmm. And we're we're going through this <coughs> most recent <laughs> Apple uh, security white paper. Not the first they've done, though. I didn't realize that. Correct. Um, yes, they did one a couple years ago. And this, so this is an update of like where sort of their their where they stand. It's funny because the beginning of it was a little bit like they were. I mean, as I was reading it, they were talking about the the ecosystem and and you know and and all of this as if they knew this was where they were going to be. But you know, we were there. It wasn't that long ago. And when the iPhone was a closed platform, there was no developers. You know, nobody was there was Apple didn't support creating apps. They, they sort of had to do it. This was pushed on them, as you'll remember, Leo, from the outside world. People saying, we, you know, we want to make apps for this because it used to be just that little home screen with, with like ha- a little more than half of it filled with, you know, the, the standard icons. Yeah, it was just going to be web apps. Yeah. 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 App Store took oh. over. Now there's more than a billion. What? Uh, how many billions have they sold? It's just it's oh. unbelievable. More than yeah. a million apps out there. So, um, as a consequence of studying this paper, I mean, when I hold the phone now, uh, I'm just I'm impressed by it. it it's just incredible 
what an, a nice piece of work this is. And I would argue that that this sets the bar for for mobile platform. That this is what you have to do if you're going to do secure mobile. If you don't do this, and this was a point I, I hope I got across. If you, I mean, literally, don't do every single one of these things, then that creates an opportunity for for unfortunately the world's malicious operators and we obviously have plenty of them uh to pry their way in it has to be absolutely airtight and have and making something airtight which is also as open as the iPhone ecosystem is you know you go, you know I you know I just downloaded a new app we found out about you know the water the water log app from from Andy and is like wow okay hey oh they now now we both have it i mean you know so there's a lot here that that protected us and and makes it safe for us to do this i mean the fact that we can only get apps from the the app store is yes it's a limit but i mean as f secure points out it is the lack of that which represents the huge problem that android has and why 97% of the mobile malware is on android is that you know people are going to install things from all over the place so and of course that is, that is why people jailbreak their iphone they or ipad or whatever is you know they don't like being contained by this walled garden but if you if if you accept the need if you want the security and the safety you're going to trade off some some freedom but what you really get is is phenomenal security. One thing new that we know got added was the so-called secure enclave. That's a logically separate but physically resident processor that exists on the same chip. It's on the same A7 processor, but it is not connected to the processor, except in sharing silicon and and power, um, it has its own independent secure boot process that it goes through, much as the the A seven does w- with the kernel microcode. Um, it it has a hardware true random number generator, so we have true random numbers. As we know, that's crucial for for good security. Prior to this. You were able, thanks to the, all of the I.O. that the, a smartphone has, you know, you've got the gyro and the accelerometer and you've got the camera and, and audio. There's a lot, you know, and, and like specific micro coordinates of where users are touching and things. You've got lots of, of non-deterministic input that help to create really good random numbers. Now we probably have, you know, a reverse diode uh, junction that's being biased at high voltage and is we're seeing electrons crossing it and counting them which which is down at the quantum level is absolutely unpredictable so so that there um um in the secure enclave uh, operates with they use a um a counter based deterministic uh, random bit generator, not, not the ECDRBG, but the CTRDRBG, which is one of the good ones, um, because it's often the case 
that you need ra more random numbers more quickly than your source of entropy can actually provide. So w what they use is they use the source of entropy to seed and continually reseed the counter-based DRBG. Its state then is not known, so the the future of its of its generated numbers is not known. Technically, they're related to each other, but in an unknowable way. And there's a limit to how long you can run one of these before, before your, your security guarantees begin to fade. And so the idea is that the real random source reseeds this much sooner than that, that limit, which is generally pretty large. Therefore, you end up with, you know, always using numbers that no one can predict. And it's the predictability uh, that is what, what we're looking for. And Leo, remember you mentioned the word tangling last week, you know, because you must have seen this or read something about it. And, and, you, and you were right. They use this bizarre term. They call it tangling. Uh, and for example, quoting a line from there, they said, when the device starts up, an ephemeral key is created, tangled with its UID, and used to encrypt the secure enclaves portion of the device's memory space. Now, I read the entire document several times. They use tangle all over the place. They never describe it, and no one's ever heard of it. So I think what happened is they used to be saying HMAC, uh, they, or they they said we used a key, you know, message authentication code, and some proofreader came along and said, no, 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 no one knows what an HMAC is, you know, what, come up with a different term, and so someone said, well, how about tangled? That sounds good. Anyway, so I think I think if for anyone reading this document on their own, when you come across tangled. I think it's probably safe to replace that with HMAC, and we understand what a keyed, um, a keyed hash is, a keyed message authentication code. So uh, that appears to be, and and I developed that supposition, and then in every instance where I saw the word tangled, HMAC made sense. So I think that's just I think that's they what they define it about. in the glossary at the at the bottom. Oh, do they? Yeah, there's a glossary. Oh, okay, I didn't get there. I got, I got, I, I got. I, you I mean, didn't need me, it. By, that's why. But by, by the time I was done, I was like, "Oh my yeah. god!" And it's their own definition, obviously. I, I don't think there's. Oh, you, so you, there's no I one... asked you before: Is there such a thing as tangled? And you said, "I don't. Never heard that before." No, uh, and there, I, I, you know, and I was curious. So, the, yeah, of course, there's something for everyone. There, there, there was once some tangled hash that ended up not surviving scrutiny for long. So Here it is. Here's you know, what they say. The process by which a user's passcode is turned into a cryptographic key and strengthened with a device's UID. This ensures that a brute force attack must be performed on a given device and thus is rate limited and cannot be performed in parallel. The tangling algorithm, and you'll recognize this, is PBKDF2, which uses AES as a pseudo-random function with a UID-derived key. So they're, it's like a hash, right, with the UID. Well, yeah, and exact. In fact, again, this is one of the other weird overlaps between their work and and Squirrel. Is you know, I have something I call nscript, which is this iterative use of the sscript function 
in order explicitly to create a much more time-consuming encryption of the user's password. So we are tangling. And what's really interesting is that I was struggling for a term for that. And I asked the, I asked the news group folks who were following along and, and working with me uh, on, on this, you know, I said, you know, it's, we're really not encrypting the password. We're like really hashing it. Um, but no one knows what a hash is. So I'm just going to say encrypt, even though it's not technically correct, because we think of encryption as being reversible. You know, it doesn't have to be reversible, be irreversible encryption. But anyway, so they their solution to this same exact problem I had was to make up a new term, tangling. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and the so, point is making it uh, uh, computationally difficult to yes. solve. Yes, and notice also that they're mixing in the UID once again. So they are, so part of this, this entanglement, you mixes in the unique device ID so that even two users using the same password on different devices would end up with completely different tangled Excellent. results. That's even better. And that's exactly yeah. what you yeah. want. That's even better. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and, and finally, just to, to finish off on this notion of the secure enclave. So what they've done is, again, this is, you, you could call it engineering over-design, crypto over-design. I mean, they, they really, really care about doing, about delivering on their promise here of creating a platform that is just bulletproof. So um, the communication between the secure enclave and the main A7 processor is just their ability to raise a semaphore. Uh, a semaphore. They, they use an inter interrupt-driven ma mailbox and shared buffers. So either one of them can put something in to a shared buffer and then basically say, there's something here for you. And so they share an interrupt where that brings the event of data being available to the other's attention. That's the only communication they have. So there is no way for, you know, so, so this, the secure enclave is, is itself a, a very well-protected walled garden, which performs crypto operations, holds the master keys to the, to the user's identity, and there isn't a mechanism for asking it to divulge them. You, you, there isn't a way. You can merely hand it data and say, encrypt this for me in the following way, please. And then when it's done, it interrupts you back saying, okay, here's your result. And that's all you can do. So as an example of how, how much they, like almost overboard they've gone, here's an example of the secure enclave's usage. Um, it's responsible, that is the, the secure enclave is responsible for processing fingerprint data from the touch ID sensor. So, you know, there's been a lot of concern from the release of the 5S, you know, what's being done with my thumbprint on this sensor? You know, we we believe Apple is going to make it secure. They've you know, said they are, but we never really had any details. So now in this document, we know 
They write, the secure enclave is responsible for processing fingerprint data from the Touch ID sensor, determining if there is a match against registered fingerprints, and then enabling access or purchase on behalf of the user. Communication between the A7 processor and the Touch ID sensor takes place over a serial peripheral interface bus. The A7 forwards the data to the secure enclave, but cannot read it. It's encrypted and authenticated. They actually use a a well-known authenticated encryption block mode, AESCCM, which is counter with CBC Mac. Um, So it's encrypted and authenticated. I mean, we're, we're talking about the... The data moving across, what, about an inch and a half of little tiny micro-thin trace of wire as it comes out of the Touch ID sensor and, and before it goes into the A7 chip. You know, it's been encrypted and authenticated for that inch and a half of travel at light speed um, with a session key that is negotiated using the device's shared key that is built into the Touch ID sensor and the secure enclave. So there's three parties involved. The secure enclave, remember, it has no I.O. It has no interaction with the world because that would be unsafe. So the A7 processor does have a serial peripheral interface, and it's it's able to talk to the Touch ID sensor and ask it for readings. But it doesn't have the, the key that's necessary for decrypting them. That key lives in the secure enclave. So all it can be, all the A7 processor, you know, the main guts of the, of the iOS device, all it can do is serve as the intermediary, essentially deserializing the data over the little one wire interface line, filling up the buffer in this mailbox that it shares and then tip tripping an interrupt saying, okay, I got a fingerprint here for you. I don't know what it says, but it's up to you now. Um, so then they say the session key, the, se- the session key exchange uses AES key wrapping with both sides providing a random key that establishes the session key and, as we said before, uses AES-CCM mode transport encryption. So, you know, just for this, this half an inch journey um, inside, our, inside the, the iPhone 5S, uh, there is a secure key negotiation performed using random numbers generated at each end. Um, and this data moves into the secure enclave. Now, in terms of the Touch ID unit itself, um, it uses a an 88 by 88 pixel array at 500 points per inch in a raster scan, which is temporarily stored in encrypted memory within. So, so that that's what it generates. It takes a, a snapshot, 88 pixels at 500 PPI. I don't know what the 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 um, the per pixel um, intensity depth is on that. I, it's not said here. 
so it's temporary. So that gets transferred into the secure enclave's encrypted memory, um, where it is vectorized for analysis and then discarded. So the bitmap is vectorized and discarded. The analysis itself uses subdermal ridge flow angle mapping, as we've talked about initially, originally when this was released, which is a lossy process that discards minutiae data that would be required to reconstruct the user's actual fingerprint. So they're making it clear, as we assumed, but now we know, that they're translating the, the bitmap image into this what they call ridge flow angle mapping representation, which doesn't allow you to rebuild the fingerprint. And they say the resulting map of nodes never leaves iPhone 5S, is stored without any identity information in an encrypted format that can only be read by the secure enclave. So that's private memory to it, which, which so... The fi- all during training, all the fingerprint images are encrypted as they go into it, dealt with by it, and stored encrypted in memory that only it has access to, and they never go anywhere else. All that can happen is that it decides if you are you uh, and sends a little mailbox message to the A7 processor saying, uh, actually, it's even more sophisticated than that because it involves keys which Apple just goes crazy with. Um, And that's where we're going to stop for this week. We will pick up on locking and unlocking the phone, keys, the file system, uh, how much Siri has to get from you, because it turns out Siri needs to know a lot more about you than is is readily apparent. Uh, And we'll also talk about um, what happens with iMessage and the, a little bit of a concern that's raised by some choice of, of an odd choice of crypto one place in the cloud. And we'll do that as part two of this next week. Great stuff. I'm really glad. And I who knew it would take this much detail to parse this? But, but uh, that's great. I'm really glad you're doing it. We need to know. Oh, and it's a yeah. fabulous document. I mean, yeah. they they really did. I think this, you know, how much criticism have we and everyone given Apple over hit their historic refusal to tell us what's going on. And, you know, while there are some technical details left out, um, there's enough here, I mean, to really understand, you know, we don't know, you know, how they're obtaining their their initialization vectors for the AESCCM, for example. But, you know... Everything else was done right. We have to assume that they did that right too. So, and, and arguably, that's a level of detail <laughs> that 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 really doesn't fit in a white paper. I, I think this is this is set at just the right level, uh, especially now that we know what tangling is. Steve Gibson's at grc.com. That's where you can find this show, sixteen kilobit audio versions thereof, transcriptions too, handwritten by a human being. Elaine Ferris. Uh, you can also, while you're at GSR, grc.com, get a There's so much other stuff. I mean, of course, there's Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Uh, but there's, uh, oh, just on it. Squirrel is there. Perfect paper passwords. Password uh, padding and, and, and he calls them haystacks in general. Lots of great stuff. It's, it's more and more become a richer and richer resource. If you want uh, audio uh, 32. 
two or I guess sixty four k audio or a full quality video HD and SD. We have that at our site twit.tv slash sn. You can also subscribe. We have uh, RSS feeds for it in your favorite netcast catcher, Stitcher or iTunes, whatever you use, and uh, share it with your friends too. I think there's probably a lot of people on iOS who have the security wherewithal to understand what we've been talking about. Next week, more, including how iMessages uh, works, because I'm yeah. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, and and I have to say too, even I mean, we're going to talk about locking and unlocking. It's just incredible what they go through. I mean, these little boxes are so secure, so well designed. Nice. And my point is that if they weren't, they'd be crawling with, with an infestation of malware, and they're just not. Right. Right. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. We do Security Now Tuesdays now, our new time, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's 2000 UTC because we are in summertime, and UTC doesn't change, but we do. So yeah, I love summertime. We're an hour earlier now at, uh, at uh, whatever I said, 2000 UTC. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Leo, talk to you next week. Thank you, Steve Gibson. See you next time on Security Now.